Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was bought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Uh, why do people reject Jesus as their king? Uh, why do people reject Jesus as their king? Uh, one word answer, sin. Sin, by which we mean deliberate rebellion and rejection of God as God. But now here's the key for today. Uh, that is never just an intellectual rejection, but rather is always a moral re rebellion also. Sin isn't just intellectual, it's moral too. Uh, we're starting a new series uh, in this middle section of Matthew's Gospel, and I wanted to start uh, by saying it's all about Jesus. It's one of the joys of being back in the gospel. Jesus is so on the surface of every single passage. Yet Matthew pauses the Jesus story and starts this new section all about this very weak man, a horrid Herod, petulant, rash, immoral, little upstart. Why? Well, Herod is a picture of the rejecting world. And Matthew paints rejection for us here so that we can understand why everybody doesn't see Jesus and simply accept him, which, of course, the whole world should do. A sin is not just intellectual, but moral. For Jesus is plainly and blatantly king of the universe. Uh, last December, the podcast, The Rest of History, uh, which I often enjoy listening to, uh, they spoke about Jesus for a couple of episodes. The two hosts, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, uh, they don't claim to be Christian, uh, but they are excellent historians. And they verified the documents that you all have in your hands, uh, the verdict on the Bible, one of the most historically reliable documents in history. Uh, we can really trust these words in our hands. But when it came to actually looking at Jesus himself, well, they performed every intellectual somersault possible, ducking and diving to avoid actually saying, logically, the simplest explanation is the reasonable explanation. Uh, Jesus must, in fact, be who he said he was. 
It was almost a comedy as they self-selected the bits that they wanted to believe and the bits that their logic couldn't cope with. See, sometimes we can think um, that rejecting Jesus is just an intellectual thing. Yet these two guys with brains the size of planets, well, they can't figure it out, can they? Sin isn't just intellectual. Uh, Stephen McAlpine um, has just released a book. Um, it's titled Being the Bad Guys. And it'll be really helpful for us to get our heads around the, the premise. This is the premise. That as our world is changing and our culture becomes less Christian, we won't just be the neutral people in society anymore, but the evil ones that people will hate. He says, there is a cold civil war coming to the West. In short, are you ready for the murder attempts for the sake of the gospel? Very sobering for us to hear that this morning, isn't it? And we need it. And we need today's passage because it will teach us why it is happening. Let's dive into the story, part one, before then zooming out to see the lesson, part two, and then the application, part three. First of all, the story, part one. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that this is a very bizarre story, partly because of who it's about, but also why do we need to know this? Like we said, it's not about Jesus, but Herod, the Tetrarch. Now, this isn't big, scary Herod from chapter 2, who tries to kill every male baby when Jesus was born. Uh, No, this is his son, um, Herod Antipas. Uh, Let's set the scene. Uh, Jesus uh, was becoming really quite famous, verse 1, going viral on all the media streams, capturing every big headline. Um, Of course he was. Um, He emptied hospitals, loved the weak, and gripped everyone with his teaching that nobody had ever heard anything like it before. Um, He is a journalist's dream. As a quick aside, uh, interestingly, uh, one point from the rest of History Guys, which they couldn't avoid, was this. Um, How could a random man come up with all of these golden ideas? Um, Aristotle managed about two great ideas, Plato won, uh, whereas every line of Jesus seemed to be gold, because plainly, he was from God. Surely that's the obvious conclusion, not that they could admit that. Jesus was like no other, wasn't he? So verse 1, of course his fame spreads. And so it hits the courts of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Being a tetrarch, though, was more like being a backbencher in parliament than being king or prime minister. See, Herod was miles down the food chain of command. Uh, In those days, uh, you had the emperor, who's in charge of everything, below him the king, then the ethnarch, and then a tetrarch. Um, See, if you didn't live in Herod's particular area, then you're unlikely to have even heard of his name. Uh, Herod was a pawn in the game. Son of Herod the Great, sure, but not really anybody particularly himself. And you'll see by the end um, why we'll call him Horrid Herod, for he is truly 
horrific, weak, unreasonable, and ugly. Uh, Look at his answer in verse 2, which is just so bizarre. Read this carefully with me. Having heard of the fame of Jesus, uh, we're not told what particular news, but verse 2, Herod decides uh, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, it's worth just clocking that John never performed any miracles. He was simply a teacher preparing and pointing to Jesus, who would then do the miracles. That's always how John put it. And yet Herod's logic is so eclectic, unreasonable. You can almost hear the guilt in Herod's logic, can't you? He's basically persuaded himself that a powerful ghost is out seeking revenge on him. Now, why would Herod think this? Was he very superstitious, particularly into ghosts? Uh, Not that we can tell. And so we hit the flashback. The flashback, verses 3 to 12. Uh, Verse 3, 4, Herod had done all these things. And and this backstory, well, it's here to explain Herod's bizarre response to Jesus' fame in verse 2. And it all starts with John being thrown in prison. Uh, What's the crime? Uh, John simply told Herod what he should have known as a Jew or even just as a regular human being. It wasn't lawful to have his brother Philip's wife. (laughs) It's worse than a bad soap opera, isn't it? Uh, John, though, he didn't compromise. Uh, John just played the straight bat. Verse 4, it is not lawful for you to have her, for which uh, he lands himself with chains on his wrist and the countdown to his beheading has begun. But the moral corruptness hasn't really picked up full momentum yet. See, notice here how Herod, he has no control in the story. Uh, Just look, he wanted to kill John, verse 5, but he didn't have the political power to as John was known to be a prophet. Herod probably thought, imagine the potential uproar. So Herod tried to chain up the problem instead. Uh, You can just imagine Herodias, his new wife, constantly nagging nagging him to sort out this problem uh, as they fall asleep together every night. Remember John saying, we're not legitimate. Get rid of John to show the people who is really boss. But what can horrid Herod do? He's a nobody. He's certainly too weak to hold power, and he can't control a single person in the story. Verse 6 introduces us to Herod's birthday party, and the picture is hardly a PG, although the text itself is relatively restrained and doesn't elaborate. But the outrageous morals of the Herodians suggest debauchery, and perhaps... Matthew presumed people would read between the lines. Herodias' daughter, literally in the Greek, a young girl, was at best the youngest of teenagers, maybe even as young as 12. She danced. It's unlikely to have been a ballet. And the men drooled over her. 
She pleased her father-in-law. I'll let you decide what that means for yourself. And the little girl had them in the palm of her hand. And of course, Herod was pleased as punch. The guests were all delighted. He looked like a man of power. Yet he isn't, of course. Sordid, ugly, abusive, lust-driven, pathetic, and weak. And just imagine the drunken, foolish state which led him to verse 7 to make such a stupid offer to his little daughter-in-law. Generous? Maybe. Stupid? Very. Beyond comparison. So verse 7, the oath is given. Whatever you might ask, it's yours. Have a pony. Have one of these men. Have whatever you want. Verse 8, the real powerhouse of the story steps in. Herodias seizes the opportunity. Her deepest, darkest desire divulged. The death of the man whose only offense had been telling the truth. Herod, still not in control of anybody in the story, the people, his guests, the little girl, not even himself, is ironically described in verse 9 by Matthew as the king. Because, of course, he is anything but the king. A weak, pathetic puppet. Like most weak men, he feared to be thought of as weak. He should never have made the oath, should he? And definitely should not have kept it when it got out of control. And even Herod must have been horrified by the request. Even horrid Herod. So although verse 9, he is sorry, almost certainly due to his raging guilt, even in his drunken dignity, he still orders the platter. Sickening. Gruesome. And seemingly the party continues throughout the murder. There's no trial. And it's a brutal beheading, both of which were illegal under Jewish law. Not that Horrid Herod cared about any of that in the slightest. Now we need to pause and ask, uh, why this story? Why this story? Matthew's whole book is all about Jesus, the king. And although uh, this little story is topped and tailed by Jesus' fame uh, and Jesus hearing about the story, it is one of the rare moments in Matthew which isn't really about Jesus at all. So why this story? And to answer that, we need to realize who John the Baptist was exactly. John was a very important individual, a particular man at a particular time for a very particular purpose. He's sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus, just like Katja said. Um, he was the one pointing to Jesus, the forerunner to Christ, the warm-up act, if you like. Uh, in Matthew 3, um, he is even painted as the Elijah figure. 
And we'll see in a moment that Jesus thought of him as such as well. And we know from Isaiah and from Malachi that Elijah was meant to prepare us for the coming of God himself. So sure enough, Elijah, otherwise known as John, he came. And so, of course, God, otherwise known as Jesus, he came next. Now, what happened to John? Imprisoned. That happened in chapter 4 and in chapter 11 and here, obviously. And our text obviously concludes and completes his narrative in the big story arc. So this is the end of John's story with a brutal, unjust murder. For what? Telling the truth? But that isn't actually it. See, Matthew and Jesus, uh, they use John's story to teach us later on. Uh, This story isn't so much a flashback as a flash forward, as a foreshadow of what is going to happen to the man John was always pointing towards. See, John's life may have ended, but Jesus intends us to learn a valuable lesson from John. Turn with me forward to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 12. Matthew 17 verse 12. And Jesus to persuade the disciples of the pattern of the cross, the pattern which they are struggling to get their heads around, he tells his disciples, you there, that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Do you see why this story? John foreshadows Jesus, blazing the trail in more ways than one. His whole life and death was in the pattern of the Christ, which, of course, is the pattern for the Christian. But we can't end just yet, for we need to pause and realize the lesson for us, part two, the lesson. And in some ways, uh, this story is a picture of all human sin. So we could apply it. Um, Don't be like horrid Herod. Um, Don't be like that. Beware of being a bit like Herod. But I don't think that this is why this story is here for us. Why? Well, you and I aren't out to kill John or Jesus, for that matter. At least I don't think we are. Uh, That is the role for the unrepentant in Matthew. See, the picture doesn't map onto us quite like that. Sure, uh, there could be some overlap which can help us learn about sin, but I don't think that's primarily why this is here. So what's it here for? Uh, We need to learn this lesson. Blind hatred and rejection is inevitable. And the world around us, just like horrid Herod's party um, and his guests, they won't bat an eyelid, even at the ugliest form of it. This story teaches us about the world and their rejection of Jesus. It's not just an intellectual rejection, but moral 
rebellion. The world loves being the world and it hates being exposed. See, have you ever wondered why more people don't believe in Jesus? Why everybody doesn't see Jesus as clearly as you and I do? Um, Or why everybody doesn't see sin as clearly as you and I do? Because the facts of the gospel are very plain. Follow the logic. He is who he says he is. There's no other explanation. Sin is really very sinful. So why doesn't everyone see it? See, this this story paints Horrid Herod, not just as an intellectual rejecter of Jesus, but as a guilty man who can't face up to his own moral failings and will stop at nothing to prevent himself from facing up to the facts. At any moment in the story, he could have stopped, couldn't he? Done the humble thing, repented, but no. He'd rather live with blood on his hands and guilt eating away inside of him. He'd even rather conclude that John's headless ghost was out to enact revenge on him than call Jesus his king. He'd rather pretend to be strong and pretend to be a king than admit weakness and throw himself at the mercy of God found in the beautiful Lord Jesus. Now let's just pause and feel this um, even more by asking, why is this story here? Why is this story here? In other words, um, why did Matthew choose to put this episode after chapter 13 and at the start of this section running from chapters 14 to 19? Now we're going to be a tiny bit technical here, so hold on tight. Um, Now Matthew's gospel um, as a whole, it's made up of five big sections. Um, Each of them starts with miracles from Jesus and is followed by a big chunk of connected teaching. So it's miracles followed by teaching, miracles followed by teaching, miracles followed by teaching, five times over. And chapter 14 to 19, our our, our new series, um, is starting the third big cycle, the middle section. In chapters 14 to 19, it's all about how Jesus is assembling his people and gathering his church together. And so as Jesus's ministry reaches wider and wider, while obviously so opposition sharpens. Hence why we start right here. And we keep flip-flopping between teaching us about the world and just gazing at the Lord Jesus in all of his beauty because we need to know both. We need to know Jesus is the saviour and we need to know that people will always reject him. See, it's normal kingdom work, polarised views of who Jesus is. And Matthew gives us this so that we won't be worried when others don't understand Jesus. In fact, he explains it so that we don't get confused when people even are being murdered for it. He's equipping us to understand the nature of assembling the church. Not everyone will accept Jesus, despite the plain, naked facts which plainly point to him. And we see the world rejecting Jesus as we see that. It makes their folly so plain 
and actually so stupid, dare I say. See, why wouldn't you trust this king with your life? Only if you're too arrogant to admit that you need a king like this. Uh, We need to know that Jesus really is building his church. As our memory verse reminds us, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, no unbeliever can stop Jesus' church being built. It's inevitable. And so we turn to the application, part three. Um, You need to know that the worst they can do is kill you. Now, I'm being slightly deliberately cheeky here because nobody that I know here at the 10 a.m. is in prison experiencing threats of being beheaded. If that's you, come and see me afterwards. But it is true nonetheless, actually. Now, let's be very, very clear here. What we've read today is not a parable. This actually happened. It actually happened, and probably more to the point, still actually happens around the world. Uh, You might feel like this lesson isn't really for most Christians, but certainly around the globe, uh, this wouldn't be out of the ordinary. Uh, Last year alone, Open Doors says 5,621 Christians were murdered, 2,110 churches attacked, And 4,542 Christians were detained because of reasons related to their faith. That, if my math is is correct, is 12,273 reasons to believe. This is true. A literal reality. But of course, it's fair to say that this isn't reality for us in this country. Or not yet at the moment. But remember what Stephen McAlpine told us. There is a cold civil war coming to the West. Of course, um, John is very unique. Uh, We need to be careful, don't we? John prefigures Jesus, um, and he's a unique man in salvation history, the Elijah figure. But actually, in the same way, as John received abuse and murder for aligning himself with the truth, so will we. Now, like I said, I don't think anybody here is experiencing murder attempts uh, for being Christian. And we need to ask why. Because maybe we aren't being bold enough with the truth. But that can't explain everything. I think this is helpful we need to realize that we live in a society where tolerance trumps all other values. So uh, blatant discrimination, like what we've read about, just isn't really allowed in our society. But under the radar, uh, surreptitious hatred, um, well, that's very much allowed, uh, even encouraged sometimes. Um, And holding Christians maybe to a higher accountability and standard, uh, maybe expecting impossibly high standards of the Christian and then throwing the book at them uh, when they fall ever so slightly short of that standard. Well, see, that is quite normal, isn't it? I think that's what's happening to most of us 
every single day. The world hates the truth, you see, and will go to extraordinary lengths to suppress it, even if it tries to cover up the tracks. See, I think this is all expressions of the world not being able to stand the truth. Uh, Mini murder attempts, if you like. Social murder, career murder, character murder. I mean, why else is it that the gentle, kind, soft-spoken Christian is treated so poorly in their workplaces and with their friends? Of course, uh, there are always loud mouths who get people's backs up. Uh, Let's not be those people. Uh, We need to be very careful not to wind people up unnecessarily. But to present the truth plainly, as it seemed John did to horrid Herod, it's always going to reveal guilt and in turn fear and rejection, uh, possibly leading even to murder. Although, thankfully, maybe not literal murder in the UK today. Uh, Just this week, actually, um, one of you wrote to me saying that your HR department uh, rejected the Easter message um, for their uh, proposal for their company, but they were encouraging and allowing the Ramadan message to be um, publicly portrayed. Uh, Someone else um, said to me, And they helped me define this experience for you. Uh, And this is what they wrote to me. They said, as I've become more senior in the business world, I found that on the face of it, people were more polite in their comments. But the underlying message was always still the same. Why would anyone believe a God or your God? How could you believe that? Um, Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him, and we will face the same sort of gospel reactions, whoever we are and whatever we do, just as Jesus did. I'm sure you can talk with each other about more of the experiences yourselves, but we need to think um, how we can do this together. How can we do this together? I mean, how did John and Jesus do this? Um, How does the scriptures expect every Christian through the centuries to manage with many murder attempts every single day? Uh, Simply this, uh, we need, uh, which is exactly what Catherine asked for prayer for, um, a heavenly perspective, knowing that our Father will one day judge. See, the worst they can do to you is kill you and send you to be with your maker. Wouldn't that be better? Uh, We must never, ever look to our reward in this world. Uh, John certainly didn't, did he? Uh, Just think of John, cut off by a violent death before the age of 34, the burning light quenched, the faithful preacher murdered for just doing his duty. He needed an eternal perspective. And so do we. And just think of all the blood throughout the history of the Christian church, which has been spilled at John, James the Apostle, Stephen, Polycarp, Ridley, Latimer. I could go on. And I actually try to regularly reread J.C. Ryle's little book, The Five English Reformers. If you've never read it, you must. 
Um, their clarity of the last day in the face of death is extremely striking. Uh, John Hooper, one of the reformers, um, on the way, uh, on his walk to the stake to be burnt alive, well, he had someone who Hooper had led to Christ beg him to spare his life, um, urging him to say, uh, urging him by saying, uh, "Life was sweet, and death was bitter." Hooper replied simply, "Eternal life was more sweet, and eternal death was more bitter." And we need to know that their blood was not in vain. We need to look upwards, just like them. We need to realize that our time here and now is heading for the future, where any blood, physical or metaphorical, will be righted. So why this story for us? Why this story for us? I hope it's very obvious now. I need this story, and you need this story. Um, it's preparation for ministry as a Christian. When I talk with people who don't know Jesus, I need to remember that their rejection of Jesus isn't just intellectual, but blind, deliberate, moral suppression. They simply refuse to look at the facts of Jesus and to draw the logical conclusion. And Jesus sheds light onto people's lives. And they really hate that. They squirm at it. They do anything they can to avoid it. Um, and guess what they might do to you next? Well, the worst they can do is to kill you. I mean, imagine, just for a moment, if William Taylor, our rector here, uh, imagine he was brutally murdered literally or metaphorically, for simply teaching the truth. How would you respond? Would you adjust your version of the gospel? Would you make it more palatable? Would you face up to the truth or try to chain it and bury it? Uh, you and I need to grab hold of this reality. The world will stop at nothing to suppress the truth. But wonderfully, the church that Jesus is building cannot be thwarted, and not even the gates of hell will stop it. Let's pray as we close. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this picture of horrid Herod. We thank you so much that this story, even though it is unpalatable, and difficult to read, actually. Uh, we thank you so much that it teaches us such a crucial lesson. Thank you that you show us what the world is really like, and you show us what rejection of you looks like and feels like. And thank you so much for showing us the ugliness of it. We pray for those moments where we speak to you people about you, and they hate it. Uh, we pray for those moments where um, people are squirming. Help us love them. Help us be so kind and gentle with them. But help us keep pointing to the truth, Father. Embolden us. 
Give us every strength, Father, by your Spirit, to just keep telling them the truth. And Father, in that sense, we, we pray that you would be preparing us um, for the, the many murder attempts that will inevitably come. We thank you in one sense that those in this country are metaphorical. But Father, they're still hard and they still hurt. So prepare us for that, we pray. Help us after this meeting to be speaking about these things and strengthening each other's arms. And help us be praying together that we will be standing firm, knowing that your church can never be thwarted. And Father, we pray that you would um, give us such confidence uh, as we look at the Lord Jesus over these next few weeks. We pray that you would um, help us, Father, to know him more dearly and to love him more clearly. And Father, we pray that you would um, grow um, our love for the Lord Jesus uh, more and more. We pray all these things, Father, for your glory. Amen.